I think I first heard the classic story about Archimedes from Mr. Litsky. Mr. Litsky, uh, Phil Litsky, was my high school lacrosse coach, and he taught an elective course just for a few of, of us on the history of math, or as I recall, perhaps it was the history of mathematicians. And it was a great little course that he taught, and in that course he told us the story of Archimedes, and as the story goes, and you probably recall this story from your own uh, school days and studies. As the story goes, Archimedes is given a task. Archimedes is the Greek mathematician, third century uh, BC, lives in Syracuse, and the king of Syracuse has received a crown, and he suspects that this crown that he has received may in fact not be as pure as it is touted to be that it might actually have some other alloys in it, it might not be as valuable as the maker of it said. And so he gives it to Archimedes with the job of figuring out, is this the real thing or not? And if it is, how much of it is the real thing? The challenge that Archimedes has is he's not allowed to destroy the crown to figure out what's actually in it. He's not allowed, in other words, to melt it down and to try to figure out what the composition is of this particular crown. So he's puzzled about how he figures this out. And as the story goes, you know, Archimedes one day is getting into the bathtub, and as he gets into the bathtub, the water overflows off over the sides of the bathtub, and he realizes that what he can do is figure out the volume of an irregularly shaped object by the displacement of the water. And so that will allow him to measure the volume of the crown itself and then to determine how much should silver or gold, gold weigh and weigh it accordingly and therefore figure out whether or not it is actual and whether or not it is actually true gold or whether it is mixed with too many other things. This is an exciting moment for Archimedes. It is so exciting, of course, as the story goes, that he runs out into the streets of Syracuse naked, shouting, Eureka, Eureka, I have found it. Now, I, uh, I kind of understand uh, that the uh, story itself and the science, which is quickly beyond me, uh, they don't actually work out perfectly. So whether the story is true or not, whether the science works or that, are beside the point, because nevertheless, the story has become one that everybody knows, and one that everybody can reference and talk about the joy of discovery, the joy of having found something and come to understand it. So from the naked Archimedes to this week, if you were following the news and if you watched some of this, the tears that were shed by the scientists as Cassini, the probe to Saturn was, was if you will, control crashed into the atmosphere of Saturn. We are, in fact, a creation, a creature that is seeking. We seek to find, we seek to understand, we want to know how the world works, where the world comes from. And not only do we seek it, 
not only do we sometimes find it, but that there is for us a particular delight. There's a joy when we discover the answer to something, when we find our quest. Well, John the evangelist has, of course, found something. Uh, one might call the thing that John has found a pearl of great cost. And he invites his readers in this gospel to join him in the joy of the discovery of that thing, in searching it out, in taking apart the various pieces of this and trying to understand, okay, who is this and what is the thing that is worth so much? John, the way he's going to do this is he is going to cite the questions and the objections of the people who are surrounding Jesus. And they are the kind of questions that we would ask if we were there. And they're the kind of questions that we would ask now if someone were claiming to be the Christ or if the Christ had not yet come and we were trying to figure out who the Christ is, who, who, who is a person who is out there as this promised one. So what's going to help us over the course, not only of our sermon today, but throughout this book, is to kind of allow the questions, even the objections, of these various interlocutors to be ours as well, to, to go through it with them and, and walk along with them. So today, there are, there are a number of questions in this text. I'm going to categorize them with three questions. The three questions that we'll look at today are, who are you, who is the one, and what are you seeking? So who are you is, of course, the question that is asked by the delegation that comes out of Jerusalem to John the Baptist. Who is the one is the question everybody is asking. And what are you seeking is the one that is asked by Jesus himself. So let's start off where our text today starts off with, that, that is, the, the delegation comes out from Jerusalem and wants to say to John, who are you? And there's a whole series of questions that relate to this in the text. Are you Elijah? Are you some kind of a prophet? Are you the prophet? What, what are you saying about yourself? Why are you out here baptizing? What gives you the authority, in essence, to be doing what you're doing? From the distance of time, it is easy for us to imagine that the answers to a question like this were self-evident. I think we can mistakenly have the idea that if you only had, in those days, eyes of faith, if you only understood your Bible, all things would be immediately clear to you. You would know exactly who John the Baptist is. You wouldn't be confused, right? If you, if you sat there and you saw this guy dressed as John would have been dressed after they were baptizing in the wilderness, you'd raise your hand. Sunday school question, who's that? John the Baptist. Is he Jesus? No, he's not Jesus. We think everything would be clear to us. To understand these questions, you kind of have to put yourself back in time and realize that, that these things just weren't that clear. That these were confusing and these were serious questions that people were asking trying to determine the identities of these people. So the gospel writers, whether it's John or the other gospel writers, appreciate and respect unknowns. 
anomalies, peculiarities, things that don't fit with other things, irregularities and ambiguities. And certainly while we'll see this in John and we see it in the other gospel writers as well, while some questions that are asked of Jesus or about Jesus, some of them are simply provocative and impertinent questions. Others of them are just really legitimate questions, trying to figure out who he is and how we should respond to him. So to this delegation that comes from Jerusalem, John is something of an enigma, trying to figure out who this guy is and what he is doing is not immediately clear. They look at this one and they have questions about him. It's a time that is rife with mess messianic expectations. And in, the, in that season, in that time, John's a puzzle. You got to figure out what he is doing. The historical records tell us that baptism was practiced in that day. The thing that was unique, though, about the baptisms that were practiced in that day is that they seem to have been, for the Jewish faith, associated with the various washings that are described in the Old Testament. And so one would be baptized in the same one way that one would uh, have a ceremonial cleansing. And oftentimes that could be done by someone else, but often it was done by yourself in the same way that you would wash to be purified before offering a sacrifice. But what was unique about it is that Jews weren't washed in that way. They weren't baptized in that way. That was for people who were converting to Judaism. So John is a puzzle as it relates to that because they don't understand certain things. One, John is doing the baptism, baptizing himself, and two, he's baptizing Jews. That, that doesn't fit. That's, that's an enigma. That's a strange thing. And the fact of the matter is he is attracting many people, and so this delegation comes with these questions. The scriptures expect a coming one. They expect a Christ, a Messiah, all of which are to say an anointed one, one who will come prophesied as a king, as a priest, as a prophet, and so they are all searching for this one, and they come to John with these questions. Are, are you this John that we're talking about? The scriptures foretell of the coming of Elijah before that time. So if you're not him, maybe you are Elijah. And the scriptures foretell of the coming of a prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18, for example, speaks about that. And John in response to those things, functions as we would expect him to function, or we should say perhaps speaks as we would expect him to speak given what was said about him in the prologue that we looked at last week. John bears witness. John confesses. We could read through the, that language quickly, but that's important language for John, our writer, because while he doesn't want to set this up completely as a court scene, he doesn't mind using for us legal language to describe what's going on here. This is a witness, and this witness is making his confession. Now, John doesn't say, well, 
listen, in answer to who are you, he doesn't say, well, I'm John. I'm John. You actually should know who I am. My dad is Zechariah. He's a high priest after all. My, my mom's Elizabeth. These are people you should probably know, given the fact that this is a high priest who was there. Instead of saying that, John points away from himself by denying any of the proposed identities that he has and taking on a, a rather nameless identity. He, he described himself, I am a voice. He doesn't even want to say, I'm John the Baptist, by the way, <laughs> just to clarify. I am a voice. And I'm telling you of someone who is infinitely greater than I am, who is incomparable to me, to use the language that I used last week in the prologue and then to take it back to creation. I am the moon testifying to you of the existence of the sun. Wholly different things. That's how great the difference is between John and the one of whom he has testified. After all, what is water baptism compared to one who can baptize with the life-giving spirit? Those two things don't even compare to one another. So John is pointing away from himself. He denies and redirects the question. What John basically says is, who am I is actually, in reality, in comparison, not a very important question. The question that is important is, who is the one? That's the question. Who's the one? And of course, that's the question that the delegation has. Everybody is looking for the one. And not only is this Jerusalem delegation looking for the one, but John and his disciples are also looking for the one. John has an interesting mission. Again, it may seem to us that it would have been easy for John to say, okay, well, that's Jesus there. I've seen his pictures. I know what he looks like. That's, that's Jesus. He's coming up right there. Mary and Elizabeth knew one another. I know the old prophecies. That's him right there. I've always known who he was. John's mission is interesting because he is to prepare a people and his job as a herald is to reveal the one, to be able to say, behold. But John doesn't know who it is. He's got a mission to declare who this one is without actually knowing who the one is. But he has, of course, a clue. He's got a key. He's got a prophetic word that has been given to him. And the prophetic word is this. When you are baptizing, at some point in your baptizing, you will see one on whom the spirit descends in the form of a dove and remains on him. That is the sign. That is the anointing of the Spirit. That is the, if you will, making of the anointed one. The Christ, the Messiah, the identity is confirmed with that. We can't make the mistake of thinking it was an easy human task 
to identify who is the Christ. It's a supernatural one. It's a supernatural one from John. It takes a specific supernatural revelation for that to be confirmed for John. And when that takes place, then John's testimony becomes positive instead of negative. His testimony started out negative. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And it turns positive. Verse 32. I saw the dove descend on him, on Jesus. Positive testimony. I saw this take place. Verse 34. I bear witness that he is the son of God. I, I don't like to do this too often. The best translation there is probably not. I bear witness that he is the son of God. It's probably that he is the chosen of God at this stage. I bear witness that he is the one who has been chosen of God. The third positive statement that John then makes, and most dramatically, is the one that we all love. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold Agnes Day, the Lamb of God. This is one of the most precious and beloved statements about our Lord Jesus Christ. But I, I have to tell you something about this phrase, and what I have to tell you is it's something of a mystery. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Isaiah 40 passage, which forms kind of the backdrop for what's going on here, doesn't expect that a lamb will come into the world. The Isaiah 40 passage expects a shepherd to come into the world. So in Isaiah 40 language, it would make sense to say, behold the shepherd of Israel the one who cares for the lambs. But John says, behold the Lamb of God. And what he's talking about, what the reference point is, is actually unclear. We don't actually know. We're tempted to look at this and to roll into it for the moment all of the things that we know about lambs from the Old Testament, how they were the sacrificial animal. And we could think of a variety of stories from Passover to sacrifices or potential sacrifices uh, of, of Abraham's son. But we don't know exactly what it's referencing. All sacrifices were not lambs, and the word for take away sin could equally be translated in a judgmental kind of way, not in a redeeming kind of way, in a judgmental kind of way. That's it. When this one comes, he's taking it away. The judgment time is coming and sin will be removed from the earth. And that is actually kind of consistent with the message that we hear from John in the Synoptic Gospels. He expects a time of judgment to come. I guess what I'm saying is this. It is unlikely that John the Baptist at this stage of revelation understood penal substitutionary atonement. I know that's a big phrase, but it's, what I'm saying is it's unlikely that John understood that Jesus would be the Lamb of God sacrificed and offered in our place, in our stead, 
so that we might have the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. John himself is going to have questions. When he sees the ministry of the, uh, of the one not going as well as he would have expected, not being as well received as he would have expected, when he sees himself suffering, he's going to ask the question, are you the one? Or should we expect another so how, how do you make sense of this? Uh, and I just needed to go into this one phrase in particular. How do you make sense of John making this great statement that we love? And uh, D.A. Carson is rather helpful on this point. This is not his, uh, a quote from him directly, but kind of a summary of what he says. Sometimes we speak better than we understand. Sometimes we say things better than we underst understand. Titles for Jesus, titles for the Son of God are piled up in this passage by all of the people with whom the interactions take place. There's all sorts of titles that are assigned to him. That's why I had to sing uh, the, the song that we just sang, Join All the Glorious Names. It's why I had us confess the Heidelberg Catechism and all of those you know, what does it mean when you say he is the Christ? What does it mean when you say he is Jesus? To try and understand that all of these things are piled up together, but like children, many times when we confess the faith, we say things that we recognize as a good and a right and a true thing to say, but we don't fully understand all of the things that we are saying. And over time, that gets filled in. John was speaking ahead of his time right here. I think by inspiration, he was speaking ahead of his time. I don't think he could have understood all that he said when he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On the other side of the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, he could fill in that phrase. But for now, we have it declared of our Lord Jesus in advance. And that's going to bring us to our last question and our next set of witnesses. Two of John's disciples shift to Jesus. They follow Jesus, and he asks what I'm going to use as our last question today, what are you seeking in verse 38? And once again, we can delight in multiple levels that exist for this question. On the one hand, it's a completely innocuous question. It's easy to understand it. It's easy to make sense of it in the moment. Why are you following me? What, what are you seeking as somebody's just standing behind you? Just turn around and ask the basic question, why are you behind me? And the disciples seem to give what at first appears to be a quite literal, although not specific, question kind of back to him. Uh, just wondering, where are you staying? What are you seeking? Just wondering where you're going to be staying. It's delightfully mundane. But of course, what's going on here, and, and you have to see this in John, this is going to be a pattern that we will see in the Gospel of John, is that we are transitioning from the logistical to the existential. We are switching back and forth between that which is physical, where are you going, what are you seeking, 
Why are you behind me? Where are you staying? To that which is metaphysical, deeper questions, to put it in the language of John 1, we're working back and forth between water and the spirit. Okay, I baptize with water, there's one who baptizes with the spirit. And that pattern is going to work through John. John's not going to let you be one or the other. He's not going to let you live as a materialist in a world that's all physical, and he's not going to let you live as some kind of spiritualist in a world that's all metaphysical. The word became flesh, and John allows those two things to go together. So we've got these questions, simple questions. What are you seeking? The biblical truth, attested to by the scriptures and by all of us, is that we are all seeking something. We all want something. We may be able to articulate what it is that we are seeking. We may not be able to. We may not be able to put a specific name on it, but the reality is that we have all got a hole in us. And we are seeking to plug the leak and to fill us up with something. If you asked Odysseus, Odysseus, what are you seeking? His answer would be, I want to go home. That's what I want. I, I, I want to go home. I want to go to the place where I belong. I want to go to the place where I fit. I want to go to the place where I can love and be loved, the place where I can work. I want to go home. Rabbi, where are you staying? Existentially, metaphysically, we think that we have found what we are looking for in you. And we have this sense that we want to go home and we have an inclination that actually being with you, abiding with you, staying with you is home and the way to go home. And Rabbi, if, if we could use some old words of a sister in the faith, here's what we want to say. Where you go, we will go. Where you stay, we will stay. Your people, our people. Your God, our God. And the Son of God turns, says, okay, come and see. And they began to track down friends and family with a message of delightful discovery. Verse 41, we have found the Messiah. Who have you found? We found the Messiah, the one who is the Christ. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him. Who did you find? We found the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Joseph. Nathanael, who did you find? Found the king of Israel. Found the king of Israel. Rabbi, you are 
the Son of God. From Jesus' perspective, who did you find? Well, the one who knew you before you had ever seen him. The one who knew you while you were seeking, while you were praying, while you were meditating, while you were contemplating under a fig tree where you thought nobody saw you. That's who you found, the one who had already found you. Who have you found? You have found the one who opens up heaven to you. The lost and found department of all eternity is open for business in the Son of God. Eureka! Two applications for you. How'd you do with the application from last week? Want a quiz? You want to all do it together? No, we won't, I won't do that. We won't all do it together. The application from last week, in case you missed it, was to memorize John 1, 1 to 5, and to go outside and say it as the sun rose or set, as the moon rose or set. Two applications for you today. There are three great phrases that are in this passage. They are all combined together at various ways. They are, behold, come and see, and in effect, seek and you will find. John the evangelist, John the Baptist, Jesus, and all the disciples invite us to discover Jesus. Now, obviously, John, in inviting us, John the writer, recognizes that we can't physically follow Jesus. We can't go and get behind Jesus and say, Rabbi, where are you staying? That's not possible for us. John says, I invite you on this journey through the eyes of those of us who were there. We'll ask the questions. You put yourself in our place. You listen to what the master has to say. You watch what he did. You join us on the journey of discovery that we took. Thomas Akempis writes this in The Imitation of Christ. Let it be then our chief study to meditate on the life of Jesus Christ. Our chief study is to meditate on the life of Jesus Christ. That's an incredibly important phrase in my own spiritual life. It is why, when I started preaching here seven years ago, we started in Luke, it is why we now return to John, to stay close to the Gospels, to make us to be a people who meditate on the life of Christ. And so here's what you have an opportunity to do over the course of this sermon series in John. Meditate on the life of Christ. Meditate on these incidents, these episodes, these stories that we're going to have with us each week. Allowing yourself to be in those settings, to see them from the vantage point of the various people who were there, to listen to what was said. Not just to figure out little clues about the passage, how to interpret the passage, to meditate on the life of Christ and to be in this. Cassini had 13 years around Saturn. It took seven years to get to Saturn. 13 years around Saturn to look at Saturn, to behold Saturn, to see the moons, to see the storms that rage. Behold, the maker of Saturn. 
all things were created through him. And without him was not anything, that's good. Without him was not anything created that has been created. The maker of Saturn, the maker of all things is there for our discovery. Second application is this. These two things are going to go all the way through John. You don't have to keep it a secret. There's nothing to hide here. There is no secret knowledge that is here. You do not have to hold this back. There is an impulse that exists within people who have found something wonderful, or in this case, who have found the one who is wonderful. And the impulse is this. I want to tell somebody about this. I want to tell a friend. I want to tell a family member what I found. Because what I've found is the pearl of great cost. May the Lord give us then eyes over the coming months to behold and a mouth that is not ashamed to speak and to say, Eureka, I found it. Let me tell you about it. Lord Jesus, thank you for becoming incarnate. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to know you. Thank you for the baptism of the Spirit that allows us to have new life and be able then to see you and to delight in you over the months ahead, even over the week that is ahead. Help us as your people to meditate on the life that you lived. And help us, help us to join in testifying of these things with delight, with boldness. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.